Welcome back to Season 2 of Talking Points. This season, we're back with another 10 beautiful conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary dancers, choreographers and artistic directors. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen McRae, principal dancer with the Royal Ballet in London. Stephen grew up in Western Sydney in a suburb called Plumpton, 45 kilometres west of Sydney. His dad was a drag car racer and no one in the family had ever learnt to dance. But somehow, dance found Stephen. And by the age of seven, he asked his mum and his dad if he could start dance lessons and they enrolled him in a local studio around the corner from home. It was a life-changing decision. By 17, he had not only won the Genet and the Prix de Lausanne, he was standing alone in London, having been accepted into the Royal Ballet School, his heartbroken mother on the plane home to Sydney. In this beautifully candid conversation, Stephen talks about his journey to principal at the Royal Ballet by the age of 23, and that it's not always as it seems. He speaks about early bullying, crippling homesickness, not always fitting in, and devastating injuries. But Stephen speaks of more than that. He talks about starting his own family with his wife, Elizabeth Harrod, also a dancer at the Royal Ballet, his post-retirement plans, and the moment he snapped his Achilles tendon live on stage in front of two and a half thousand people, and how he climbed back from the impossible to perform with the Royal Ballet once again. Just quickly interrupting to let you know that this episode of Talking Points is sponsored by Fjord Review. Fjord Review is dedicated to publishing dance reviews, interviews, features and photography from around the world. Whether you're a self-confessed ballet tragic or new to dance, Fjord Review is your companion in dance. For all Talking Points listeners, there's a 15% discount on subscriptions to Fjord Review using the code TALKINGPOINTS15 at the checkout. Available until the end of October 2022, Visit fjordreview.com, that's f-j-o-r-d-review.com, for full T's and C's. I guess I wanted to start by asking about your early life and where you grew up, because it's a long way from London. (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, I went to Rudy Hill Public School, so, um, you know, right out west. Mm. And um, my family were not involved in the arts or, you know, particularly the world of dance really at all. My sister um, did a bit of gymnastics, and, um, but my father uh, it was a drag racer. So we were brought up, my sister and I, at the racetrack, Eastern Creek Raceway. Wow. My mother and father, you know, they had their honeymoon at a racetrack because racing's just been part of who they are. And a lot of their friends and their circle of friends were all made through racing. So that was my upbringing. There was no obvious natural introduction to the world of dance other than my sister doing a bit of gymnastics and a little bit of dancing. And she was really the inspiration behind it. I used to love watching her fly around as a gymnast. And then I saw her do a bit of dancing one day. And at the age of seven, I turned around to my mom and dad and said, I would like to have a go. And I think they were more surprised that I would have the confidence to go in and do Mm. something like that. Because I was a very shy, quiet kid. I was very happy standing behind my mom's leg all the time. Um, So I think their initial response was, yeah, great. Okay, let's take him. Like, maybe this is a good thing for him. Oh, I see. So as a confidence builder. Yeah. And I just think it's remarkable. There's obviously a lot of 
stereotypes and cliches that unfortunately still exist in this world. And mm. most people would assume that, oh, a motorsport family would never let their son go off and do a dance class. Mm. You know, my parents were the complete opposite. They couldn't have been more supportive. So yeah. I stepped in to a local dance studio, literally five minutes up the road from where I grew up uh, at the age of seven. It was a jazz class, uh, very quiet, shy kid. Virtually every kid in the class had been doing it for a few years. So they mm. all knew the setup and the, the sort of structure of the class, what it was. And I best describe it to people that I went in there unsure of what was going to happen. And by the end of it, I felt like a tiger that had been unleashed. Really? Wow. It was this complete freedom. I, rem I can still clearly remember the teacher just encouraging everyone to, you know, spin as fast as you can, jump as high as you can. Like, you'll probably fall over. We'll all have mm -hmm. a laugh and you get up and you try again. I wasn't starved of inspiration. The world of motorsport is just phenomenal. And I'm still obsessed with it today. And I still follow drag racing, particularly in America. A lot of my early inspiration has all been <laughs> from these drivers, men and women. So that's interesting because I feel like, as you say, as you touched on earlier, that stereotype might be the kid from Western Sydney whose parents drag race. Why would he want to start a dance class or particularly a ballet class? Because mm. is he not going to be just absolutely bullied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly that. That sums up the stereotype perfectly. And um, I was very fortunate that um, I can remember a scene went along the lines of being at the racetrack and some drivers were talking with my dad and some of them, they've all known each other for so long, mm. said, what's this that we hear your son's dancing? And my dad just said, yeah, he's, he's really good. You should come and watch him. Wow. And that was the end of it. So it was that like disarming. Yeah. And just, I think, hearing that full emotional support, really, mm. from the people who you admire the most, which are your parents, mm. gave me, I guess, all the confidence in the world to just absolutely push forward. And um, to learn that at a young age was incredibly powerful. And so was ballet the first love? Because I read you were quite a good tapper. <laughs> so I started <laughs> off with uh, jazz and then the tap and ballet then entered the, the ballet the dance school that I went to um, provided all sorts of styles mm -hmm. they encouraged us to do everything the the teachers believe that your dance training should be like your academic training you don't just learn maths as a kid you learn everything to give you a rounded education so um the dance school really followed the same method really um so uh by the age of eight I was doing jazz tap ballet uh, it wasn't really until I was an early teenager that ballet truly took grip of me because at a young age, I thought ballet was just doing a weekly class so that I could do a ballet exam. I mm -hmm. didn't know, coming from the family and the culture that I was surrounded by, I didn't know that dancing was a profession. I didn't mm -hmm. know that that's what people did for a living. So it wasn't until I was an early teenager that I had a new ballet teacher who had trained at the Royal Ballet School in London and had her own career, uh, she started to slowly expose me to this profession that maybe I'd be interested in. And it was uh, a video, actually. Are we talking VHS here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am in that generation. There was a video that my dad had recorded late one night on, you know, on probably the SBS or ABC. And they was showing a, a gala performance from the Royal Opera House. 
and it had one tiny little snippet. It was a three-minute pas de deux or a duet mm-hmm. at the end of a ballet called Manon by mm-hmm. Sir Kenneth MacMillan, mm-hmm. and it was performed by Sylvie Guillaume and Jonathan Cope. And, yeah, I'd never seen anything like that. It was not ballet as you expect. There was no tutu. There was no princely manner about it. It was mm-hmm. just this extraordinary three-minute clip, um, and it was just so powerful that – the next day I went into the ballet teacher and I said, yeah, I, I think that's what I need to do. I have to do that. Wow. That tiny video clip transformed my entire outlook on where I wanted to put my energy in life into. And that was a three minute video. It's extraordinary. And so how do you get from the round the corner studio to being accepted into the Royal Ballet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, my family emotionally gave me all the support in the world. Uh, financially, there were obviously um, limited resources. Mm. It was 2002, beginning of 2003, when you know the Aussie dollar, I think it was one pound was three Australian dollars at the time. We didn't know a soul in London. Um, I'd never been to Europe, nothing. So my teacher in Sydney knew of different competitions and things. So I started to do a number of them in the hope that that would either provide me with some prize money or exposure to people who could help point us in the right direction. Mm -hmm. The Royal Academy of Dance, they hold an annual competition called the Fontaine competition. And um, for the first time ever in 2002, it was held outside of London and they held it at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, So I was able to competing it because I didn't have to fly to London. Yes, yes. And I was fortunate to win the gold medal. And that prize money was able to buy a flight to Europe because the following month, there's a competition called the Prix de Lausanne in Switzerland. And the prizes at that competition are scholarships to the world's best ballet and dance schools and some apprenticeships to the attached companies. So I was able to go because I had won the prize money from the previous competition. Uh, So my mum and I arrived in Switzerland, never been to Europe before, had no idea what on earth was going on. Mm -hmm. We obviously didn't speak a word of any language that was being spoken. I was surrounded Mm -hmm. by people from all over the world and all there just as hungry as me, wanting that one particular (laughs) prize so that they could choose where they wanted to go. It was incredibly stressful because I knew that if I didn't perhaps deliver at that moment, the journey was going to be even more difficult. And my mum, bless her, was so aware of it that she had to have medical attention while we were there. And So is that just the pressure on the family that you had this dream and they couldn't finance it and this was the avenue to get there? Exactly. And a bit of a, a lovely Hollywood ending to it because I was awarded first place, which meant that I could choose whichever school I wanted. So I chose the Royal Ballet School. Mm. But then it all quickly turned around overnight because the director of the Royal Ballet School, fellow Australian who's unfortunately no longer with us, Gaylene Stock, Mm. extraordinary woman, she knew a bit of the financial situation. And she said, well, there's no point flying back to Australia to come back for the academic year in the UK in September when your scholarship starts. Tomorrow, when you fly through London back to Sydney, don't get the London to Sydney part, just get off at London and we will find you somewhere to live and you will start tomorrow at oh Royal Ballet School. How old were you? I just turned 17. Incredible. I'd never lived away from home. I'd 
been so focused on obviously high school and academics mm-hmm. and then uh, towards the end the shift really went to dance you know I, I hadn't even put a load of laundry in the washing machine or anything because mm-hmm. it was just go to school all day dance all night wake up do the same thing again so I suddenly flew to London the next day my mum left to go to Sydney because we couldn't afford for her to stay <laughs> in a hotel for weeks sorting me out and so there I was stood in Earl's Court with a suitcase by myself and got on the tube went to the Royal Ballet School and stood there and said now what <laughs> yeah i mean it's a it's a coming of age moment really because 17 is you know really that moving into your adult life but really only just i mean was it just complete yeah, and I was, when i say 17 i was what i see as many 14 year olds today i was mm. a very young very young 17 year old There was no family friend or anything that I could see on a Sunday to have a bit of normality. There was none of that. So I was completely, in a way, I hate to say it, but I was just dumped (laughs) on the other side of the world with this sort of um, torn emotion because Mm. I had just won these competitions that have literally opened the door to a path that I dreamt of, Mm. yet I felt the most miserable I had ever felt (laughs) in my entire life. Mm. I mean, was there any part of you at that point that thought, oh, you know, I could just move to Melbourne, join the Australian Ballet? But you see, you persevered through. Every day I woke up and uh, the hostel that I was in, it was literally like a bed and a wardrobe at the end and my suitcase was at the top of the wardrobe. So every morning I'd wake up, open my eyes, and the first thing I would see is this suitcase. And every single morning I thought, should I just grab my case, go straight to Heathrow and just go home? But my, one of my very first teachers, she said, just, you know, you've got to give yourself time. So give it three months. After three months, if you still feel the same, like we can all reassess the situation. So, of course, every three months I'd be like, okay, give it another three months, give it another <laughs> three months. And uh, before I knew it, I graduated from the school and I'd been offered a job with the Royal Ballet Company. So wow. um, I would say it took me well over three years from arriving into London to start to feel a bit more at ease. So you you get into the company. Have you made it then? Have In your eyes, have you, I'm in, I'm a professional dancer? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's an element of that. The, the goal was always to move to London to join an incredible company, just like the Royal Ballet. And of course, the Royal Ballet was right up there at the top of my list. I think the initial struggles of arriving and knowing that I was there in London, essentially putting up with all the the rubbish that I was going through mm. mentally and all of that sort of stuff, accepting that I was going through all of that because I'm on my own mission. Mm. And so I think when I joined the company, it felt like that was just me going into the next gear of the mission. <laughs> yeah. It was not, oh, I've, I've achieved it and here we go. I'll just enjoy this now. That's when I really felt that I began to put my foot on the accelerator to use a motorsport term. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reading about your career, you were made principal really within five years of joining the company. But I think one of those years you weren't even on stage. You were rehabbing your Achilles. Yeah. So you, you really were on stage, what, performing for not even four years. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's a, a cocktail of events, isn't it? Mm. It's, a, you know, you've obviously... Well, I did a business degree quite early on in my time in the company and I loved this analogy of 
success, whatever success is, mm. but the term success is like a three-legged stool and you've got to have the hard work, you've got to have the talent, but you've got to have an element of luck. And I believe I had the right cocktail, if you want to say, mm. um, of those elements because like all professions where you're using the human body, there are always going to be injuries of some kind or illness. And I just always made sure that I was prepared to step in when those opportunities popped up. So whenever people would say, oh, do you know this role or can you do this? I just never hesitated and just said yes, even if I didn't know if I really could do it or not. <laughs> but again, I wasn't in a situation where I was feeling supported, so to speak. I didn't have a long-term relationship at the time. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the family nearby that I could just pop home to at the weekend or mm. see every now and again. So I was just so focused on <laughs> career, career, career that if, of course, if they said, do you know the role? I was not going to say, oh, maybe. Mm. I just, yes, of course I know it. And can you tell us about that moment you were made principal? Because at, at least here at the Australian Ballet, mostly they promote principals on stage after a performance. <laughs> yeah. is, is that the case at the Royal Ballet? No, that they, the Royal do not have a history of doing that. It's done in an office, oh, in private, away no. from everybody. You're usually told that you have to keep it quiet because it won't be announced for a week or two weeks or something. Oh, so there's not even that moment of applause. Yeah, oh. it's this moment that you've obviously been dreaming of and then you kind of walk out with your <laughs> poker face on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very weird situation. And is, is that how you felt? Yeah, because... I mean, obviously, you're on such a mission to try and achieve that. But then to be a principal dancer, it's a huge, huge task. It's a huge responsibility when you're, you know, at the front of, the, of each production, part of these incredible organizations. Mm. So, yeah, I felt like that was when the real work began for me. <laughs> wow. So I wanted to ask about your two big injuries and and huge rehabs after those injuries. I mean, for some, they would be career-ending injuries. Can you tell us what it's like to have such an epic rehab process and where the head goes and how do you get back to the stage? So the, my first time off stage properly was in the early years in the company, before I was a principal. I'd just turned 20, I think, and... Uh, one of the principal dancers was injured and scheduled to do the opening night as Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. The, the ballerina doing Juliet, Alina Kodrakaru, suggested me. And uh, so I had five days to learn the production and I did the opening night with her, which still to this day is one of the greatest honours of my career. It was all very quick and overnight and I suddenly found myself doing a lot of work very quickly and obviously within months it was not a case of me just being able to focus on that principal work. I was a soloist at the time, so I was doing principal work, soloist work, court of ballet work. I was doing everything. Mm -hmm. So within months of this new experience, my body started to fall apart and my Achilles was in a really bad state. So it was a horrific time because I felt my career was just starting to fly, getting these wonderful opportunities, and then the doctors said, you have to stop. So I was off stage uh, a year. Wow, it's a long time. That was age 20 to, yeah, 21, 22, something like that. Mm. But it, learned, uh, it taught me very early on, okay, you only have one 
body, that's your instrument. So try and look after it. But at the time, you know, I think we had one physio in the company. Um, so I wasn't really able to educate myself fully about what the body needed to embark on a career like this. Okay. But I got back on stage and within that following year was made a principal. And then my entire career as a principal was relatively injury free. I don't know how I did every single ballet. I was in all three pieces in every triple bill. I did each production with three, sometimes four ballerinas stepping in for people that were injured. And I absolutely loved that period mm. because we're performers. I want to be on stage. You don't want to be in the studio all day. Yeah. Then my wife and I started to have children, which mm -hmm. was always my dream and still to this day, my greatest achievement ever. <laughs> and um, I think my wife and I were both burning the candle at both ends before we had children. Mm -hmm. We were just living and trying to survive each day. You know, sometimes you would go all day without a lunch break. So, And your wife is a dancer with the Royal as well. My, yeah, my wife was a soloist with the Royal Ballet as well. And so when we had children, the one real element that we used to rely on was sleep mm -hmm. and obviously when you have children <laughs> that's the last thing you get <laughs> so um my body held on um it wasn't really until we'd had our second child uh, he was about eight months old and um you know we had two children at that time so we had a two-year-old and a eight-month-old and uh unfortunately they both struggled with allergies and my son in particular, just, we just didn't sleep. If we got 30 minutes at a time, that was a good effort. So it doesn't take a scientist to see what's going to happen there. My right Achilles started to cause trouble. I navigated multiple paths, had three surgeries to try and correct things, getting back on stage mm. each time. Um, it got to summer 2019. I was still in so much pain coming back from my third surgery I didn't know what to do. I was scheduled to perform in Manon, this ballet that had inspired me to pursue ballet. <laughs> and yeah, I was preparing to do my performance. And 10 days before, I was in so much pain that I had a chat with my director and the medical team. And um, we all you know, said, we've got to do whatever we've got to do. So if, if it means I've got to see a specialist somewhere in the world, let's do it. We've got to find the solution to this. But I was in a situation, it was 10 days out from my show. I had been on and off stage for about a year and a half with different surgeries. I didn't want to miss my shows. I was in pain if I mm. danced and I was in pain if I didn't dance. So I figured, well, I might as well dance. So uh, mm. I was drugged up to the eyeballs. You know, I was timing prescribed anti-inflammatories and painkillers. Uh, I was topping them up with just over-the-shelf painkillers and anti-inflammatories, totally dangerous and overdosing. And um, timing it to the point where I knew if I take this tablet at this time in half an hour, this will kick in so that when I go to the stage, it'll be reduced. It was horrible. It was a horrific time. But I managed to get through Act 1 of the show, and it was okay. I got towards the end of Act 2, alone on the stage, full auditorium, 2,500 people, orchestra playing, starting to relax, thinking, thank God I'm on this stage dancing. I took off for a small jump and my Achilles snapped. It was like, um, you know, some people say it can be like a gunshot going off. To me, it sounded like a, a plank of wood 
being tripped on. It was like, dung And uh, orchestra kept playing, of course. I was on the stage. I managed to keep upright on <laughs> my other leg. Um, I couldn't move. The, I think the audience knew what was going on before I did. But the curtain Are you was on the eventually floor brought or in. you're standing? I was able to stand. I was able to keep upright. But you're just standing absolutely motionless on the stage. Yeah, because I couldn't move. I was in shock. I didn't know what was going on. I was looking at the floor thinking that I'd tripped on a, a wooden wedge. We used oh, them see, like yeah. a doorstop. Mm. You use them to slide underneath sets to stop them moving around. And there was a quick scene change before I had snapped my Achilles. So I just thought, well, maybe somebody's accidentally left one on the floor or something. So I was looking around. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And obviously there was nothing. So I hobbled to the side. And um, that was when the real panic struck because uh, I was obviously in tights. And I looked down at my Achilles and there was a big chunk missing. It looked like somebody had taken a bite out of my leg. And I thought it was all over. My third child had only been born five weeks before, oh. had three children under the age of four. Oh my goodness. And I just thought, what am I going to do? I don't come from obviously a family that can just bail us out. My wife's family are uh, a good five, six hour drive away. It is purely my wife and I. We are our own support network. Mm. And here I am <laughs> thinking I will never dance again. But extraordinary part of the story is my director, Kevin O'Hare, obviously was backstage, the blink of an eyelid. There was a whole team around me before I knew it. He managed to keep eye contact with me the entire time while still organizing how the show was going to continue. Because of course, there are two and a half thousand people who have come for a whole night at the theater. There's a whole act still to go and act two hadn't finished yet. So he managed to somehow remain in my eyesight organize somebody to come in and replace me. Uh, So within 20 minutes, the curtain had gone back up. The show continued. I was in my dressing room. They'd already spoken to the surgeon who I was going to see the next day to discuss the next stages. And my director was with me the whole time. And of course, I looked down at my Achilles and thought, I'm never, I said, I will never dance again. This is it. And it was him. It was Kevin, my director, who looked me in the eye and said, no, we will get you on that stage again. You will dance again. And it was like he flicked a switch because throughout the next two years that it took to get back on stage, that was genuinely the only time I openly said, I can't do this. And it was his belief, the instant belief, no, we will make it happen, Mm. that set that journey up. It enabled me to go by the time I got home in the taxi and on crutches and my wife is there with our five-week-old son and the other two children are in bed, oh my goodness. I was able to say to her, it's fine, I'm going to do this. We're going to get through this and I'm going to get back on that stage. In a way, you were saved by the bell a little with COVID, which <laughs> yes. the same six months later, I imagine. Yeah, so it was, it was all pretty timely. By the time... I was able to walk unaided. It was really the beginning of February Mm. by the time I could walk without any crutches. Uh, When I say walk, I mean, I couldn't do really more than 100 meters anywhere, but I could go a small distance without crutches. Uh, So that was when I actually returned to the Opera House to start the in-person rehab. I had my incredible physio, uh, Richard Clark. He would come to my house every week to check on the wound and get me up on my feet and stuff like that. But it wasn't until February that I started really in-person rehab at the Opera House. And yeah, a month later, that was all 
ended abruptly. So my rehab was done via Zoom, which is not ideal. <laughs> wow. I mean, was there a silver lining in this that you got to spend a, a nice long paternity leave with your children and your wife? Oh, definitely. I mean, the the benefits, I think, for the children in particular were incredible. You know, my wife uh, had just given birth, so she was on maternity leave. So when she would have really been going back into the building was when, you know, I snapped my Achilles and Mm. COVID was starting. So my children obviously had both parents at home, which they wouldn't have had. Mm. I think for me personally, it had a double-edged sword because it enabled me to constantly have that reminder every second of the day that there's a bigger picture here and these little people are putting everything in perspective. But it also increased the pressure because every single day I looked at those little people thinking, I have to make this work mm. because they are relying on me. <laughs> yeah. So it was a blessing and a curse in a way because mm. I felt an enormous pressure. Uh, a, a professional career as a dancer can be incredibly um, selfish. It's a very selfish profession. It's all about you all the time. But anybody who has children will understand that the second you have a child, there is no you anymore. (laughs) You are well down in the pecking order. So, you know, with three children, um, that's exactly how I, how I felt. I mean, you returned to the stage not so long ago. So the wonderful um, end to that story is you rehabilitated that tendon and you returned. I mean, what was that moment like? (laughs) Um, so the whole two year process was extraordinary, but incredibly difficult, far difficult than I think any of my words would ever, you know, paint an accurate picture of, Mm. but the build up to it was incredible because there were still so many unknowns building up to my first show. My first show was so Kenneth McMillan's Romeo, Mm. a ballet that I had first done as a very young dancer in the company. And it's, I think one of the most extraordinary productions in the world and I, I have a very soft spot for it but it's also one of the most demanding male roles <laughs> to do so it was not a case of oh he's back on stage he's coming back to the stage with one of the hardest roles you can do and get through so the weeks leading up to it there were still unknowns about my condition and can I get through it and will the leg hold up and all this sort of oh. stuff so uh, I was working constantly with two psychologists Um, navigating obviously the physical fear Mm. and the challenge that I was embarking on, but also how am I actually going to step back onto that stage? I didn't go down to the stage the entire two years. I couldn't bring myself to even go near it. I really couldn't watch much ballet. I was traumatized Mm. by it all. So I yeah, had a huge build up. The day of the show, I had the entire day timed (laughs) to a minute. I knew exactly what time I was going to eat that. And I was going to drink that coffee at that time. And the children will leave the house at that time to go to school, which means I can then eat my second breakfast at that time. And it was so regimented and anal, but it was a way of me giving myself some sort of control because I knew emotionally I have to battle a lot of uh, emotions that day. Mm. But when it got time to the show, I'd followed this regime all day. I was on track. I was on time. And they held the curtain for five minutes. For some reason, there was some delay out front in the auditorium. And I could feel myself spiral. It's like, no, this is not part of the plan. I had timed it to get to the stage at the last minute because I didn't want people 
you know, yeah, coming up to and, me yeah. and mm. giving me their energy. I had to be selfish in that moment. So obviously the five minute delay, I just felt like the whole company was staring at me and I felt oh. like the expectation was just growing and growing and growing. But the entrance for Romeo um, in our theatre is logistically not far from the stage door. <laughs> <laughs> and at that five minute point where I was stood at behind this set, I just thought, actually, stage door's right there. No one will blame me if I just, if I walk out, if I just leave. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously I, I didn't and the orchestra started to tune and, and you know, mm. the buzz happened. But to step on stage and to feel the most genuine warmth oh. from the audience was, for me, just something I'll never, ever forget. I have adored performing on this stage my entire career what I felt that night from the audience was something I had never experienced. And just to, to feel that it was also a sense of relief and a release for a lot of the audience as well, because a huge proportion of the audience were in the audience the night I snapped it oh. and they were then there the night I returned. So it was part of, I know it was me who went through it, but it was part of their journey as well. And mm. I really felt that from the audience. It was quite a special night at the theatre. They must have been um, on tenterhooks as well. That energy must have been transferring. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. And then when the curtain went down, I think I finally, going full circle to when I had said to my director the night it happened, like, that's it, I'll never dance again. And him saying, no, you, you will, we'll get you dancing on that stage again. Two years later, almost to the day, there I am finishing a show of Romeo. I finally, during the curtain calls, allowed myself to think back to that moment where I thought I would obviously never dance again. And throughout the journey, don't get me wrong, every single day, it crossed my mind that this is not going to happen. Mm. But I never openly admitted it. I never acknowledged it fully that that might happen. It might happen that I never go back on stage. Um, so it wasn't until I did my curtain call, I was mm. bowing in front of the whole audience that I actually broke down, to be honest, and I couldn't stop the tears because I finally allowed myself to acknowledge just how rubbish mm. <laughs> that particular part of my career had been. But ironically, I wouldn't change any of it mm. because the education that I've gained, the, the way I now look at our profession, the incredible opportunities that now exist to make the profession even better, which will only make the art form even better, is really extraordinary. And I wouldn't change any of that journey for anything. Wow. And so has the brain turned to the future? Oh, my brain's constantly been living in the future. I've been <laughs> criticised by people around me all the time for just enjoy what you've achieved. <laughs> right. I, I think many of us are always thinking what's next, what's next, what's next. Mm. I mean, I joined the company and uh, just before I was made a principal, actually, I started a, a degree in business management. Mm. People said, what on earth are you doing? Like <laughs> at the time I was hoping to be a principal and it was only a few months. I think it was literally a month before I was promoted to principal. People were like, what are you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. And that's always been with the, the view of the future. And then in 2018, I then did a master's degree in marketing, again, with the view of the future. And so is that with a view to sort of run a company or, you know, be artistic director one day? 
Yeah, I mean, there's multiple avenues that I know I want my career to go on, and definitely leading a great company is is part of that that journey and that wow. vision, and ensuring that this art form has the opportunity to impact as many people's lives as possible. I've always shouted from the rooftops that it's it's not an elitist <laughs> profession. Mm. It's not something just for the elite. The arts are for everybody mm. and has to be and must be for everyone. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to obviously lead a big ballet company or a dance organization. And then we'll see from there. I imagine I will want to continue screaming from the rooftop. So mm. finding avenues to ensure that I'm part of that. And just to finish, just thinking back about your young self in that drag racing community, pursuing ballet, what would you say to, you know, young dancers, you know, and I guess particularly young guys training if they are encountering, you know, that, which I hope ends soon, some of that bullying, that prejudice that exists, what would you say? I think anyone who at a young age is finding something that they're already passionate about is providing themselves with the most extraordinary opportunity to discover who they are, who they want to be, what impact they want to have on society. Not everybody's going to agree with your (laughs) approach or what it is that you like doing. So I would say to anyone, no matter how they identify, to absolutely pursue what it is that you're passionate about because you're going to put the energy into it if you have the passion. And it's by no means going to be a straightforward, casual um, train journey. It's going to be more like a roller coaster with a lot of loops and twists. So Mm. um, to have that passion that you can constantly resort to and go back to um, is, I believe, life-changing. Stephen McRae, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's just been just an incredible honour and um, really just such a good reminder that despite what you can read about people's careers in programs, that there's so much more behind the scenes and to the story that people don't know. Definitely. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stephen continues to perform as a principal artist with the Royal Ballet in London all the while juggling life with Elizabeth and their three children, Audrey, Frederick and Rupert. If you're in London, the Royal Ballet is back on the stage. For showtimes and tickets, head to roh.org.uk. And to follow all of Stephen's adventures, you can find him on Instagram at stephenmcrae underscore. Stephen and I recorded our conversation remotely, with Stephen dialing in from London and production on the land of the Awabakal and Gadigal peoples, to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released, and if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, we'll hear from Lucinda Dunn. It really did change my life. I was just 15. I was offered a scholarship that was pretty much open-ended and said, "Okay, what's your first choice? Which school in the world do you you want to go to? And I was lucky my mum was there with me and I looked at her and I was like, what do I do? I wasn't even thinking that I wanted to do ballet. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.